Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Bev Livingston will speak with Mary Taylor, founder of the nonprofit Three Quarters of the Way Done. Mary Taylor graduated from college and worked for the federal government. She resigned when charged with misuse of government funds, and she spent time in a correctional facility. There, she recognized unmet needs of the women incarcerated with her. Since Mary Taylor's release, she works with incarcerated women to assure that when they are released, they have access to vital forms of identification and other resources that assist them to find housing and jobs. For the second half of our hour, we will broadcast some of the September 1st, 2022 episode of Black Agenda Radio. Black Agenda Radio is produced by Reggie Johnson and provides news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. In this segment, there is discussion of policing, the incarceration system that it feeds, and how the political duopoly works to protect what is called criminal justice. The city of Atlanta, Georgia, is poised to spend millions of dollars to build a police training facility, which has come to be known as Cop City. The America Police Foundation believes the plan will build the necessary facilities required to effectively train 21st century law enforcement agencies responsible for public safety in a major urban city. Curiously so far, the actions of police, including but not limited to the recent shooting death of of an Atlanta activist dedicated to saving the Atlanta forest from destruction by the Cop City complex, resemble more urban warfare than public safety. Who is going to be kept safe from heavily armored and weaponized inner city police forces? On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, we open with Bev Livingston speaking with Mary Taylor. This is Bev Livingston with guest Mary Taylor this morning on Jaws of Justice. And welcome, Mary. And we are so excited to hear about your work with women who have been formerly incarcerated and the incarcerated. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk a bit about the program and services that you offer to help women returning to the community get the important documents that they need to get their identification, be able to come out and get into workplaces with the proper documents, clothing, and other kinds of help that they need to rejoin the community in which they are going to be living or have a home plan to be in until they return to wherever they need to return to. Will you tell us how you got all this started and what really motivated you to have the passion for helping women coming home? Well, so what motivated me is I was incarcerated. I was in a federal prison and to watch individuals become extremely discouraged. Number one, uh, something as simple as them having a traffic ticket prior to incarceration. That traffic ticket turned into a warrant and then the warrant became a detainer, meaning that they cannot leave prison on time or they would leave prison and go to a county jail. You know, so watching women 
And that discouragement, they find out the day before, the day of, that they can, they've served their time for the crime that they committed, and now you're being told you cannot leave prison on time. To watch these women become so discouraged, it was like, watch, you know, visualizing a balloon, and it's at its capacity, it, it can't take another another drop of air being put inside of it because it's going to burst. And then to sit there and watch all the air just go out of these. That was one of my motivators. And in thinking, by the grace of God, how fortunate I was that I had people on my side. I had individuals that I could rely upon to get things done for me. And I thought to myself, if some of these women had that same, were afforded that same opportunity, the difference it would make in their lives. So that's that's how I got started. Well, I, I think that your personal experience speaks volumes to the passion that you bring to the advocacy that you're doing. And I know that not every person returning home from a conviction and a prison stay have a family waiting to support them in getting back on their feet. So for women in the advocacy work that I've been doing for over a decade now, I have not seen as many mothers at the table or women at the table who were formerly incarcerated that are seeking support because, and I'd like for you to fill in what some of those because are that keep women for reaching out for the help or have you found that there is not as much help for women as it is for men or those of, of other gender? Well, some of the women do not reach out for help because it's simply not there. Some of the women do not reach out for help because they are, they're embarrassed they have not forgiven themselves. They, some, some of them simply do not have time to focus on themselves because an incarcerated woman, she takes a lot with her. Prior to the conviction, she's focused on her children, focused on her family. During her conviction, she's focused on her children. She's focused on her family. After she served her sentence, she comes out still focused on her children and her family and not putting herself first. And it's not that they don't want to, it's just how we as women are wired and we put ourselves less in some situations. I totally get that. And I've seen that play out in the advocacy and lobby work and other things that we do to try to empower, inform, and inspire people to be their own best advocate. As we begin to help people recognize the benefits that the community has waiting for them, whether it's a reentry uh, home placement or whether it's a, a program like Determinations that helps people come home and get involved in their 
entrepreneurial spirited visions that they have planned and thought about while incarcerated. And they actually can come out and find that SBA, the Small Business Administration, will loan you money to get your business started, will help you get equipment that you need it, things of that sort. I've met some wonderful women who have started businesses after incarceration and have taken advantage of some of the resourceful agencies and organizations that await them when they come home. But during the stay, can you talk a bit about what programs or services inside the prisons that may help women kind of hold it together and, and progress and come out not as broken as they may have been going in? Are there programs that help women and address that other than the prayer circles and the other uh, spiritual um, support that they get? You know, and that's pretty much it. Now, you can learn how to crochet. You can learn how to knit. You can learn how to make jewelry. But there are no business classes. In all honesty, there are no parenting classes. There are no classes on helping these women truly forgive themselves. Wow. That was my experience. I did not encounter any of that. Had it not been for my friends mailing me in things to encourage me, had it not been for my friends that would that I could reach out to and say, could you send me a magazine or send me a newspaper? Or maybe I heard something on television and I asked them to send this in to me. It was not there. Even something as simple as computer classes. Yes, they teach you computer classes, but it's outdated, it's outdated material. I was there in 2016 and the computer classes that they were, they were teaching Microsoft computer classes, but it was from the 2003, four version maybe. So that's, I mean, those skills are not truly useful when the computers have updated several times. Do you find that now we're in 2023 and there are tablets in the hands of inmates and there are social internet opportunities to reach out beyond the prison walls? Have you found that to be A, helpful to women, B, very, very challenging and, and not fair because maybe some of the women who may be older and not part of the digital uh, mindset know how to use it. Are you finding in the women prisons that there's kind of a, you know how they talk about the bro code where they don't tell on each other and nobody snitches. Do you find the each one teach one spirit in the women prisons where the younger women may help the older women who, who need help in the digital learning process? Or do you just find those who can't get it and, and are lost or behind just stay behind because the staff apparently isn't instructed to help them? So what is happening now in 2023 that makes it better for women in prison who are coming home who need to be up to speed on the digital world that we live in now. Now, I really do not know a whole lot about the tablets that, the tablets that they have. The little bit that I do know about it is this right here. 
they do not have very good internet connection. They do, okay, they, they receive their emails on there. They can send emails out for a cost. They can receive emails that they have to pay to be able to view. But as far as like you and I could sit down and do an internet search and all of that, I don't believe they're, they are afforded that. And I do understand that in terms of um, security and protection and whatever other reasons they want to limit the access on the internet to the tablets, some of that I can understand. But I do not understand how they can limit the access to people being able to, A, save money by not having to do the postal mailing, which now gets rerouted to Florida for our Missouri um, prison systems, and how it's just so difficult to make that communication when we were kind of promised video conferencing and some other things would now be the way that um, we can communicate with our loved ones. The system once again has failed to deliver some of the things that were promised. But I do know that the tablets have taken away the opportunity to send a birthday card, to send an encouragement card, to reach out to our sons and daughters and loved ones by way of postal mail, because it either A, takes forever to get there, or B, you got to copy something and send it that way because if it's glitter on the card or if it's coloring on the card or what have you, it gets put in a contraband kind of status and they may or may not get it. Have you heard very many people frustrated by some of the new systems that are supposed to be making it better for communication, but it has failed to do that? And we are very, very limited in what we can do in terms of communication. Am I? I'm sorry. Yes. One of the complaints that I have heard is they when when the material is scanned, and if for some reason a page is missed or the scanning, the clearness is off a little bit, it, then they have to go through a process of getting that material rescanned. And it's frustrating. It's heartbreaking. You have a letter from, your, from a family member and through human error, the scan was not clear. So now, now you're at the mercy of a staff member who I believe the process is, then now that staff member has to contact someone in Florida at this processing center. Then they have to go dig through a pile of mail to try to find the missing piece or to find the piece and rescan it. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not really sure if if they are doing them a justice here by taking the paper mail away from them. And again, on the topic of the videos that they they promised us, one of the questions that I asked was, so, okay, is it not profitable enough? Is that the reason why you all have not allowed it? What's the story? And I still do not have an answer. Well... As a business major in college, I do understand the cutting back and the the stepping up and and the just redoing 
of things that is to A, save money, B, be more efficient, efficient. C, um, try to help make life better for all parties involved, but it does not work that way. And we've seen it happen time and time again. As we begin to enter our new legislative year, for laws and other considerations. I know that we are going to be looking at a juvenile law bill that is supposed to help families that have had foster care, family court, and other kind of restitution responsibilities that families and persons who reach adulthood may have to revisit. You know, it's kind of like the past catching up with you and you pay now or pay later. For mothers, who are incarcerated. And as we know, sometimes it's a generational thing where children kind of follow in the footsteps of parents or uncles and, you know, they end up in incarcerated. And as we look at the system of incarceration, the systemic concerns that I have is what can we do as victims of incarceration, because we're the innocent victims. You're, I, I know you're a mother of an incarcerated, incarcerated son victim. now. Yes. And as innocent victims now of a system that tends to have their knee on our neck, when we come to visit, we don't know if we're going to pass all the tests to get in to see our loved ones or a contact visit where you may get a 30-second hug or a 10-second hug or whatever turns into a non-contact visit. What is it that we can do to, A, try to create the awareness of making things better and trying to get the, and I use the expression knee off the neck, but we all know that that's referred to when systemic things keep us from functioning as the human beings that we should be able to function as and have just some kind of respect for human rights and human life. What do you think can be done, Ms. Taylor, to just try to make it better and try to create an awareness to bring others on board to make it better? What What's one or two things that you would like to see well, number one, programs like this, you know, giving individuals that do not, that have not had a, for lack of a better words, run in with, with the judicial system, giving them the information, sharing with them what it is we have encountered. And, and you're correct. We sometimes we do feel like we have a knee on our neck because you go to visit your loved ones. Number one, you do not know from visit to visit if that CO that you have to encounter or those COs that you have to encounter, what type of day they're having. And if they're having a bad day, they can make you have a bad day also. Something as simple as you not smiling when they thought you should have smiled. And then it turns into something that it never should have been. Next thing you know, your visit has your visit has been has been has been ended. You go in, you see your loved one, hug your loved one one second too long, and then they again turn it into something that it it, it it wasn't. I remember one time going to visit my son, and they would not let me in because I had on some some jeans. 
the jeans had a rip down below my knee. And they said that, that uh, there was too much skin exposed, that they did not allow ripped jean material. You could not wear ripped jeans because too much skin is being exposed. Number one, I'm going to visit my son. Number two, I could see if the rip was up around my thigh or something. Now, mind you, I have driven five hours to visit this child. So I had to make a choice. Do I stand my ground with this person and challenge them on, what it is, on, on my attire? Or do I leave and go to the nearest Walmart or Family Dollar or garage sale somewhere and buy me some additional clothing just so I can see my child? Well, that's one of many examples that I'm sure visitors who go to prison um, have experienced. And I do know that the, the, the ones of us who learned that day when it, we first encountered that, we have a spare attire of clothing in the car. I began to have an extra shirt, a hoodie, a whatever. Of course, I was never dressed what I considered inappropriate, but one time I had on bib overalls at the prison in Leavenworth. Saw a man go in with bib overalls right. on, and I was denied because my bib overalls, they said, had too many metal uh, hooks or whatever, and I was told to go to Walmart and buy myself some pants and come back. That was such a a horrible experience Period. to have when you have driven a long way to see your loved one and an outfit. If you know how bib overalls look, there was nothing about that that was, you know, sexual or distracting. And I wear cowboy boots. So I wasn't trying to come in there and get the attention that maybe someone with a short dress on or, you know, leggings or whatever. I do understand that they have to have rules. And we only have a few more minutes to let our audience hear whatever you want to share about your experience, the things that are better now or worse and how you would like to see the community step up and help us change the systemic flaws that continue to exist in the prison system. Okay, I will start out with this right here. Our prison system is not, it's not completely broken, but it is tremendously flawed. There are so many inconsistencies when it comes to how the rules are implemented within the prisons. One of the things that I would love to see happen is for the prisons to, and, and, and it should not be necessary, but I would love to see the prisons, the individuals on the inside, the ones that are supposed to be there to educate and manage the inmates' lives I would love to see them have a better relationship with the inmates' support system. I mean, okay. I don't, I don't think it's asking too much. No, I'm not saying sit down and have dinner with me every week. But what I am saying is when I call the prison and I have a question about my loved one, you don't send me from telephony from, from voicemail to voicemail. Be honest with me. 
talk to me. Because sometimes we as a support system can honestly make it a little easier for you. You tell me what's going on. I talk to my loved one and I said, look, you already know. This is, come on in, get it together. I want you to come home with me. You know that you're doing this, so stop it. And well, because I, I'm saying stop it, because I'm saying, you know the rule is don't do it in the first place, but because I'm saying stop it, sometimes it, it penetrates. Absolutely. And as a mother, I know that sometimes it's very, very hard to see your child, whether it's an adult child, a juvenile or whatever, go through these different systems that are set up to just kind of throw them in a pipeline. And their pipeline to prison is is very real, as we know. And I appreciate how you kept it real with us today. In the one minute left, I would like to ask you, what is the name of your organization? Because I have seen your work in prog- in progress as it relates to giving women apparel, hearing about the social security cards and birth certificates that you've made available. So is there a, an address or a name or a social media contact for your organization or for you is what you do? Uh, the name of my organization is called Three Quarters of the Way Done. Mm-hmm. And if anyone out there wants to contact me, my telephone number is area code 816-284-8304. Again, 816-284-8304. Call me up. I'll gladly talk to you if you have a female family member that's incarcerated, I would love to hear from you because the women that are on the inside, they need to know that they have not been forgotten and that they have not been written off. Thank you very, very much, Mary Taylor, for your support, for your advocacy, and for a job well done. Thank you for being our guest on Jaws of Justice today. You're welcome. Support for KKFI provided by the Folly Theater, presenting Kansas City's own Latin Grammy-nominated band, Making Movies, Saturday, January 28th at 8 p.m. This concert will include a live performance of their newest album entitled Sopa. For more information and tickets, go to follytheater.org. On Friday, January 27th at 9.30, Understanding Israel-Palestine airs another episode in its series, The Nagba Project. Listen as Palestinian refugees in Lebanon explain why they abruptly left their homes in 1948 in response to the growing theft from Zionist militia. That's Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30, Friday, January 27th. Thanks for listening to KKFI. Be sure to like and follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM. And thanks for 30 years of support. Now the calendar for the week of January 23rd. Monday, January 23rd at 6.30 p.m., there's a virtual webinar titled Abortion Bans Violate Church-State Separation. Access info is on our Facebook page or KKFI website page. Wednesday, January 25th, 6 p.m., a virtual event, Community First Solutions presents the State of Reparations. Access info is on our Facebook page or on our website page. 
A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. The list is updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Find our episode page at kkfi.org. We now return to our program. Welcome to Black Agenda Radio, where we provide news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly. In this segment, we have two guests who discuss policing, the incarceration system that it feeds, and how the political duopoly work to protect what is called criminal justice. The city of Atlanta is poised to spend millions of dollars to build a police training facility, which has come to be known as Cop City. Matthew Johnson is a minister and activist in Atlanta and interim executive director at Beloved Commune. He joins us to discuss the building of a police training facility that is popularly known as Cop City. Tell us about this project for our listeners who may not be familiar with it. The project as we know it to be Cop City is a plan to build out the largest militarized police training complex in the country, most likely the largest militarized police training facility in the world, right here in Atlanta, Georgia. This was done directly in response to the George Floyd uprisings, which is the largest mass movement that we've ever seen in this country, but specifically when it comes to uh, working in police brutality. We know that Atlanta is the blackest city in the country, um, and it is also the most surveilled city. And what we have to realize is that this is deeply tied to the way that this city is policed. Um, So in addition to this military training facility having deleterious effects on black people in general, it's having a direct effect because of where they're putting it in the South Atlanta area that already suffers significantly from flooding. They're removing the largest urban forest in the country to put the largest police training facility. I can't see how there could be any clearer example of environmental racism as well. Um, And not to mention there have been several groups like uh, the Rivershed Water Alliance that have really focused on how it is that this space has had significant issues with uh, sewage flooding into the water supply uh, every time that it rains more than a quarter of an inch. I mean, anybody that's been to Atlanta in the summer and spring realize uh, how commonly that happens. So what we're looking at is there are so many ways that this proposed facility is endangering the lives of our folks and it needs to be stopped and we have to hold our folks accountable in order to do it. When you say hold our folks accountable, are you referring to government and elected officials? I say that to say this, because I believe that Atlanta can exist in a certain Black American mythos that we have to unpack. Uh, And so, I mean, we have lots of Black faces in high places. However, Atlanta also has the largest racial wealth gap in the country where the median household income for black people is one third that of the median white household income. 
And so when I when I say our folks, there are so many people and so many black people that are held in high esteem in these political offices or whether they're just influential in pop culture uh, that turn a blind eye to these glaring issues. Uh, although Atlanta has this uh, attached or this um, label, the black Mecca. So these are the types of like issues that we're constantly dealing with on the ground, just being able to uncouple this idea that Atlanta is this flourishing and prospering place for Black folks when, quite frankly, the amassed wealth Atlanta's elite is predicated on having a permanent Black underclass. And we must and we must demand better from anybody who is in a position, whether that's electoral for whatever that's worth, or whether it is cultural. If any, I mean, for all of these Black folks to tout Atlanta as this place where folks can make it, they must say something about it. Uh, so you are talking about there's a, so there's this disconnect and I suspect it's a disconnect about uh, wishful thinking. We want to prosper. We want to live in communities where individuals prosper and are safe. And so that image is comforting. But uh, you're saying that that image is just is just that an image. It is not the reality of uh, how the masses of black people are living there. Well, yeah, and, and quite frankly, um, I I have a significant degree of sympathy for folks that fall into this line of thinking. I think that we saw a lot of it uh, when Barack Obama was in office, for instance, where people would do such mental acrobatics to believe and convince themselves and others that just wait, Barack Obama is going to turn things around for us, just wait, he's going to come through, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that there's a fundamentally psychological reason for that. And that is that the idea for us as a people to accept that even these people that we have put out so much of our own efforts and energy to support that are Black people that have ended up in these spaces of power, even they aren't looking out for us. That is a horrifying uh, realization for folks to come to. So there's a sense of comfort and people seeing so many Black elected officials and people who have quote unquote made it and thinking that can be me too. So when we actually address these structural concerns and the fact of the matter that, you know, um, impoverished Black Atlantans have a 5% chance getting out of, a po out of poverty, that's too hard to look at. And so what we have is so many people identifying with this myth and that of you know Atlanta being the black mecca but when we're looking at the statistics and you know the the idea of the Atlanta way which has always been uh black elite folks making deals with white elites to make sure that you for better for lack of a better words to keep black folks in line uh we're still dealing with those exact same dynamics today and we must demand better and we must demythologize what Atlanta has meant for the vast majority of Black people that have lived here in terms of changing material conditions. We've taken care of ourselves, but the material conditions have not changed, especially by those who have the power to make the most change. And it's abhorrent. It is. Um, uh, we, we face a, a, a similar situation in New York. It's not quite the same. Our current mayor is Black, the second Black yes. mayor of New York City, but he's a former cop himself and refers to himself as a cop in the present. 
who uh, wants to criminalize everything, who in in, in fact uh, wants us to, to be fearful and talks about shootings, although the number of shootings have, have actually gone down. And there are people... Uh, unfortunately, who will still defend him, defend Eric Adams, uh, give him a chance. And, you know, that that I'm sure you're familiar with that uh, uh, line of uh, reasoning, uh, such as it is any form of reasoning. So this is something that black people struggle with everywhere in your city, in my city, all over the country. I believe it's a a very deep-seated thing, the love of the Black face in the high place and this this desire to support Black people who have quote-unquote made it and are in these successful positions. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely, right? And so you run into these very, you know, peculiar um racial politics especially in a struggle like this um where when you're seeing the like wide disparity in wealth guess what you're going to end up having more radical left white folks that have the means to actually support a movement like this and so you start to see discrepancies in the amount of people that are represented and then when you look back at it and when you look at the limited opportunities that our folks have had, for instance, in the private sector, well, guess what? You're going to end up with a disproportionately Black police force, right? And so when you're looking at these narratives that these people, that, you know, folks that are on the police force are reinforcing systemic racism, and then on the other hand, you have a majority of folks that you can see out in the open that are, for instance, protesting Cop City, and we all know it's racist, but you see more Black faces on the police force than out protesting. It's very confusing, but it, I mean, but it's so deeply entrenched past racial injustices that the explanations that you have to do just to get people to understand how we got here, where things just look so upside down, is sometimes hard to convey. And uh, this is, I, I believe that that's, what are the struggles that uh, this movement has had? Let's talk about Cop City and how yes. much money is going to be spent. What is the cost of this project? At least $19 million from the private sector. And that's a lie. It's going to be a lot more. Um, and they and what we also need to look at is that I believe that it was a $10 a year lease, maybe even less for the Atlanta Police Foundation to build on uh, this land. So you have something that was once very much, you know, public land, forested, that will now be wiped out in order for this police foundation, which is a nonprofit that's funded by corporations for the police to do their bidding, that will start the first wave of construction at $90 million what happens in these structures typically is that they kind of put a gun up to city officials heads saying you must do this deal now or all these people are going to pull their money out they start building they knew that it was going to be much more than the 90 million and now they come back to the city with a bigger gun to their head saying look we've put in this much money and it can't get finished unless you do. So you're going to have this hideous half-built structure here that you promised 
folks that you would have, or you're going to have to now put up tens of millions of dollars. I know this is what's going to happen if this is pushed forward. I can guarantee it. So we have, um, and not just in Atlanta, we have elected officials who don't work on behalf of the people because they're not beholden to the people. They're beholden to the big fundraisers, the police foundations who, as you just said, get a lot of private money. So the system makes sure that people are in place who will support the system instead of supporting the people. Oh, oh, for certain. But uh, I, I think that even with the Atlanta Police Foundation, this comes from somewhat credible uh, information. Uh, it seems as if they're even disliked within the government and people are scared of them. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the police foundation has been able to leverage a lot of power from corporations and they can, and once again, all this money that, you know, our elected officials are beholden to the, it seems as if the police foundation has enough influence within the private sector to turn that tap off. So even there are, you know, some folks that we spoke to that, didn't even like the idea, but uh, when it came down to it, they were moral cowards. And uh, the politicians that, I mean, we knew them to be. So there wasn't much stock that we put in that. But uh, it was surprising to know that if, if, if folks had had the courage to stand up, they didn't even like the idea. And so that kind of tells you the type of struggle that we're in and why it requires so much from our our wider grassroots organizations to stand up because even when uh, these people in these political offices disagree morally, we can't expect them to act on them. They never have. Uh, so this is where we find ourselves stuck in. So we have the people who had the power to say no, yeah. uh, to do something who were silent. What about the people? What about Black people in Atlanta? How do they feel about this project? As somebody who has done a significant amount of in-person grassroots outreach, uh, when I am speaking to people, going door to door, talking about this, the vast majority of people that I have spoken to about this project are hearing it for the first time when I'm telling them about it. And we're talking about people that live within a one mile to two mile radius of where it will be built. This was done in the dark purposefully. Uh, luckily, we just have a committed squad of researchers and grassroots organizers that made this struggle apparent to us last spring. And we have been fighting since. I am hard pressed to think of anybody uh, who thought that building a militarized police training facility where they had been doing bomb testing in black neighborhoods, essentially, that would be a good idea. As a matter of fact, there are many people who had heard like the shooting ranges and these bombs going off in their communities that thought that it was gangs. So in some ways, the police had created an environment where people were particularly misled to think that the crime was much worse because of the actual activity that the police were doing at this militarized police training facility as it stands now. They're just bombing out what would otherwise be arable land. Uh, so I, people are firmly against it, but there are so many other fights that our folks are fighting every day 
that it makes it uh, difficult to really organize around the movement. I'll give you a perfect example. I was mentioning the South River Shed Water Alliance earlier. And every time that it rains more than a quarter of an inch, sewage flows into the water supply. So think about the knock-on effects that this has of, of African-Americans like in these communities in terms of how this has been detrimental to their health. There isn't much of anything being done about it. And while they're trying to fight this fight, meanwhile, you have this, the next thing, which is uh, the building of Cop City that they're having to deal with too. Mind you, that when we're looking at the numbers on how much African-Americans make uh, when it comes to the median household income, that's one third of white. So you have a vast majority of African-Americans that are already struggling just to make it. Uh, and then on top of that, we have all these knock-on effects continually while we're still in the midst of a pandemic that has disproportionately hit us. The problem is that our folks have been hit with so much continually over the past couple of years. It's almost come become like white noise in some ways that it's another crisis. And I think that that is really impressing upon people. This will precipitate far more police killings. There will be another George Floyd. There will be another Rayshard Brooks and several more because if we are... A, if we allow cop city to. And I think that that is the strongest case because undeniably we uh, we have the support of the people who think that this is a bad idea, but it's just that people are so strained with so many bad ideas and so many threats to their health in terms of really pushing this forward for a mass movement. You uh, mentioned the name Rayshard Brooks. He was the man who was killed by police uh, two year, the same year as George yeah. Floyd, um, yeah. who died in a way that only black people can die. He fell asleep in his car in a parking lot of a fast food restaurant, as I recall. And yeah. someone called the police instead of doing something reasonable, like knocking on his window and saying, uh, yeah. sir, wake up. Uh, and he ended up being shot and killed by police. And it's all on their body cam. Uh, this week, uh, there yeah. was a decision not to yeah. charge them. We're appalled. And not only that, what was his name? Rolf? Uh, well, in, whomever. Not only that, uh, he has been back on the payroll, received back pay, and he has a civil suit pending against the city for the wrongs done to him. In the blackest city in America, I can't, I mean, I can't think of more of a slap in the face. And we saw how people reacted to that and how wrong it was. And we know that that's the feeling of the people. Uh, however, I think that we're in a strange time where people have been so fatigued uh, that has nothing to do with their sentiment. But I, it, and so, and, and that's the struggle that we find ourselves in, that we know where the hearts of the people are, but it is a matter of mobilizing them so that we can, so that we can nip this in the bud before there is another ratio. That if anybody out there is listening and, wants to get involved in the movement in Atlanta, that's what we must realize. This is where we must draw the line before it's too late. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, protests following the killing of, of George Floyd, which uh, were huge. Rayshard Brooks being killed that, uh, that same uh, year. But the number of police killings has actually gone up. 
Um, it's more than 1,100 people a year. It's at least three people every day. One of those people will be black, but it's more than 1,100 people every year. Uh, it's a slow boil. I, I suppose that's it. So two years after this, these huge uh, groundbreaking demonstration, it just kind of petered out. I think it was because it was a, partly because it was a presidential election year and that diverted uh, attention away. But uh, the uh, conditions which created that movement have actually gotten worse. What lessons do you think, and I know this is a complicated question, but what lessons do you think we can learn from this? I wish I could think of a good metaphor for it, but if you're constantly, you know, stuck on a hamster wheel trying not to fall over, it's so hard to imagine doing anything else because it looks just as scary to jump off and fall on your face. So why not just keep running, running, running? I think that we're at a point where people are just going to keep running, running, running until there ain't no option, until they've fallen over anyway and folks realize that something else needs to happen. Uh, And that is what I fear. You know, uh, it's interesting. I I just mentioned the the presidential election. I think another thing was that was Trump and Trump was amplified, I think, in ways he should not have been. So people were focused on getting rid of him. If we get rid of Trump, everything won't everything be lovely again, as if everything were perfect before he became president. And then, of course, we get Joe Biden. And what is he saying? I want 30 billion dollars more for the police. He's constantly talking about giving the police more money. And that's little more than a racist dog whistle, as far as I can tell. And yet, it's not something he's called out on. So electoral politics, locally and nationally, continues to be a problem in mobilizing against um, uh, the police. You know, absolutely. Uh, You know, and I think this might actually be a Joe Biden quote. I believe that he once said, if you want to know where somebody's heart is, I believe, then if you want to see where somebody's heart lies, look at their budget. Well, he's he done told you where his heart lies. And when they were saying vote for blue no matter who, we're starting to realize now that meant vote for the police. Uh, Because that's what we've seen on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Not the least bit imaginative ways for us to live uh or not even or empirical ways for us to live a better life i mean just this idea that if you throw more money at police that it will fix a problem like where does that come from uh in atlanta we raised the police budget last year the crime rose so that's thrown out right there but it's this uh, i just think it's just this like this deeply paranoid fear that I think is deeply ingrained, and especially in the white American psyche, of black people rebelling because they know that that's that's what this country deserves, and uh, it, it, so when we're looking at any like empirical metric, there's nothing to really indicate to us that putting further and further money in police actually changes outcomes or keeps us safer. We do have empirical examples of people investing in education jobs programs working. When I was living in Chicago, uh, they did the math and they found out that by giving kids uh, jobs, that they disincentivized several other things that they could be doing and they stay out of trouble. 
at $12 an hour. And you have empirical evidence that this reduced crime rates, recidivism when people were put in these jobs programs, but why don't they ever invest in us? It's because this economy is fundamentally based on cheap black labor. And another, and I hope I'm not running too far afield, but another statistic that's interesting is the point system that they use to credit officers for arrest in Atlanta. Uh, you get the same credit for bringing in a violent offender, somebody who's been violent, even a murderer, as you do for bringing in a juvenile. Uh, and I believe that that's three points or four points on the list. And quite frankly, gives you an idea of how these systems work to devour our young. Um, when somebody's credited for bringing in essentially uh, new business by targeting our children. This is not a game. And the consequences are very real. And we're going to need more substantial support than folks playing, than folks living high on the hog as Black people in power playing rap music and then supporting policies that throw away the kids that would have probably been making the rap music that they're playing. I mean, it's a joke. And uh, if we can't get this right in Atlanta, well, I, I really don't think that we got any more options in this country. So that's where we're at. And uh, my final question is, uh, maybe it's a comment actually more than a question. What we're talking about is democracy. We're talking about the people getting what they want. And we're talking about political independence, which is the opposite of what we're told. We're told to keep supporting these people who uh, do the opposite of what they of what we need them to do. So I, I think the your struggle there and, and across the country is to make it clear to people that uh, this democracy that we hear about all the time doesn't really exist and that we have to struggle for a democracy that that we don't have. Right, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know what, let's let's say you don't believe me. I'm biased because my views are far left, ultra left, et cetera. How about one of the esteemed institutions in this country? Um, there was a study that came out of Princeton University over the past decade that established that there was virtually little to no correlation in public opinion to policy created in this country. I mean, so when we're looking at these things scientifically, I mean, it, it, it's pretty obvious where we're at. And I, I think that whenever, I think that we should be, and this is just me speaking in general, I wish that a lot of our folks, especially folks that are very big into this electoral strategy, are less concerned with shouting Black people down or saying that we're shaming our ancestors for not voting and invest that exact same energy in finding us something that would make this system useful or doing some sort of a direct action towards some particular policy. Because at a certain point, this is almost idolatry the way that we look at politicians in the Democratic Party. Uh, to believe that they're going to deliver us rather than us delivering ourselves. And we have literally no, we have no empirical evidence that the political system works for Black people. Uh, so, I mean, this is, I mean, this is really, once you look at it, an act of faith on the Democratic Party that I think is wholly unbelievable. You know, I uh, and I'll close here. 
I, I think it's, I've always felt it was uh, that we were not honoring people uh, who fought for liberation. They fought for liberation. Absolutely. They did not fight for corrupt politics for us to end up in this situation where people are in op- office doing the opposite of uh, what we need and want them to do. We honor them by struggling for liberation just as they did. That was Matthew Johnson in Atlanta discussing the Cop City Project. Thank you for joining this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit blackagendareport.com where you'll find a new and provocative issue every Wednesday. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff, or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 